0: Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, Undying Light listeners. I am your host, Pastor Alex, and we are back again with another brand new episode on Tuesday, which means we are working through the uh, explanation of the Lutheran faith and the Lutheran theology in hopes that if you aren't Lutheran or come from you know the confessional background and familiar with the Book of Concord, this series will help you understand and put the bigger pieces together in terms of, you know, what do we believe and why do we believe those things? And so we have been uh, actively working through so many different concepts. We have looked at uh, the history of Augsburg. We've looked at the Augsburg Confession and then went through the Book of Concord and hit most of the major points all the way through. We didn't read uh, everything in like Luther's large catechism or in the Explanations But uh, we touched base on quite a bit of material in that. And then we turned and went through the sacraments and we explained baptism and explained the Lord's Supper through the eyes of the Lutheran. And then we also took on the task of explaining uh, just some other views, but not going too in depth. And so what we're going to do now is change uh, pace again. And we're going to look at the Lutheran against the reformed faith essentially or lutherans versus reformed I don't know how you want to phrase it lutherans and reformed uh, we have some similarities and we have some differences and the our approach to scripture is completely different and so I want to start off with that when we talk about reformed generally a confessional lutheran would not include themselves in the reformed camp because we don't hold to the same hermeneutics that the Reformed camp does. And as a confessional Lutheran myself, who came from the Calvinistic and Reformed background, I look and view myself as not being Reformed, but being a part of the Lutheran tradition, which goes back as, you know, the, the, the Reformers would argue it too. They go back to the apostolic church, to the early church fathers, and that's where they cultivate much of the material. Um, But I'm also exploring, you know, many different tenets of the church, and I'm looking at uh, places like the African church, the Ethiopian church, and all those, and and trying to dig into some of that uh, material that really seems to have been lost over the centuries because the African church was never colonized or under the palpacy, and so they have a unique uh, understanding of Scripture. And so I always like to look at the different types of Orthodox, whether it's Eastern or uh, Coptic or anything like that. I always like to look at those different facets and see, you know, how do I, how could I justify this against Scripture? How do I line this up against Scripture? And is what Paul's saying in this passage true over here? And is what Peter says here over there true? And so I always like to evaluate that. But most importantly, uh, one of the things that's been comforting to me going into the Lutheran faith, is the hermeneutical approach of Luther. And he takes us right back to Scripture. He always is pointing us back. And so we'll see some similarities in Luther's approach versus John Calvin and John Knox and Zwingli, but we'll see some major differences in how they read and interpret the Scripture. And so that's going to be what this next series is. In fact, I'll be using and quoting from this book pretty often, Uh, It's called Between Wittenberg and Geneva. It's Lutheran and Reformed Theology in Conversation, written by Robert Cobb and Carl R. Truman. So this book came out uh, not too long ago by Baker Academic. Uh, I picked it up. I don't remember where I got it from, but I I picked it up not too long ago and read it this year. Read it within probably a couple of days. Uh, It came out in 2017. Read it within a couple of days. Uh, it's not a long book. It is theologically deep. Uh, it is a challenge of a read because it discusses the concepts of the Lutheran faith and the Reformed faith. And so, uh, 236 pages long, but uh, it covers a plethora of material which we will cover in the coming weeks. And um, and it's one of those things that you you have to read it in kind of chunks. You can't just take on the whole book in like one day but it was so intriguing to me. I did put it down pretty quick for myself. I'm not a fast reader. So I, I do like when I get can accomplish that, that feat, but I'm certainly not a fast reader. So don't take that as I am. Uh, I, I drag my feet sometimes in reading and then all of a sudden I'll get weird spurts and I'll read, t- you know, 10 books in two months, or I'll take 10 months to read two books. So that's just the way my mind works. It's really weird, but we are going to look at this more in depth, and I hope that this will be uh, enjoyable for you, and I hope that you will uh, understand the differences between the Lutheran faith and the uh, Reformed faith, and I I have many brothers and sisters on both sides of the aisle, Lutherans and Reformed, and I would never consider our differences to be uh, separation of such that we would no longer call each other this or that, but I do know that there are differences between me and my Baptist and reformed friends. We see baptism very differently. We see the Lord's Supper differently. And in all of that, I you know that is that is totally and utterly fine. I you know, however they want to approach the scripture, that's perfectly fine by me. But I also want to use this time to show them Where Luther comes from because I think there's a lot of misconceptions and misconnotations about Luther and people rush to grab just maybe a quote or two or maybe something that he wrote that might have been a little bit brass or probably sounds a little bit weird out of context and they use that against the Lutheran faith. And I've seen that done uh, numerous times, and and the biggest thing, like, f- and I don't know if I really got into it too much on the baptismal part, but I I've seen that used against me as being a Lutheran that, you know, Luther advocates for baptismal regeneration, and that's just heresy. I've had people actually tell me I'm a heretic for believing that, which is absolutely ridiculous. If you're gonna call somebody a heretic, make sure you have all of your ducks in a row, because here's the thing: people have never read the Book of Concord; they just cherry pick what they're trying to attack. And then they 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 go off the deep end with it. And it's like, okay, but you've never really read in context why Lutherans believe this way. Why did Luther write this in the large or small catechism? Why did Philip Melanchthon and his counterparts write this in the Augsburg Confession? Because remember, Luther didn't write the Augsburg Confession. He didn't write three-fourths of the Book of Concord. He wrote... The small called articles, the small catechism, and the large catechism that were included later. And so the the understanding of baptism is, is crucial to the understanding of the Lutheran faith. And so if you haven't had the opportunity to go back and listen to those episodes, please do so. Um, they won't be they won't be foundational to this series, but they will help in uh, some aspects because we might touch base a little bit later on in this series about those. Because, you know, I'm going to kind of give you an outline of how I I think the show is going to go in the coming episodes. And so I I always want to make sure that, you know, if you've listened to this series and you've kept up with all the episodes, then you should be fine. But by all means, please pause this when to go back and listen to the previous ones and in hopes that you will see where we are coming from as a Lutheran. And that is my that is my biggest piece. I, I want people to just understand The Lutheran faith, because I think, like I said, there's just so many there's so many bad representations of it out there. Uh, For instance, the ELCA, which we would not attest to um, to being Lutheran or especially confessional, uh, they would consider themselves to be progressive Lutherans. Well, there's no such thing as that. And so uh, we we think that they because they are such a large Senate, a large portion of the Lutherans. Uh, They give us a bad rap. They make the rest of, you know, traditional confessional Lutherans look bad because people can't get past them. And then, you know, and then we got some of the legalistic tendencies coming out of the Missouri Senate and the Wisconsin Senate. Um, Great churches overall, but there are some legalism that kind of permeates in those groups. And when we start to boil it down You know, the Lutheran churches are unique in their construct, especially the Senate I belong to, where the church, the governing body, is not a bishop or deacon or some sort of, uh, you know, appointed authority over a multiple group of churches. It's the church itself. My church council holds the authority over what happens in my church. That includes who is their pastor. And so I answer to my council as a pastor versus answering to a Senate, whereas there's structuring elsewhere in the Lutheran sentence that would have bishops being kind of overseers of the churches and the council just kind of being there to guide the church forward. So those are just some minor off the key marks about the Lutheran faith. But let's look at this outline uh, again. I'm going to be using this book. We're just going to kind of go chapter by chapter. And we're going to talk a little bit about each of these things. We won't get too deep into it. So if you want to read the book, it's called uh, Between Wittenberg and Geneva, and you can go grab it on, I think Amazon and any other good Reformed or uh, Lutheran website for just a few bucks. I think I only, I don't know, I spent less than ten bucks on it. So um, we're going to look at it chapter by chapter. So there's eight chapters. So we'll probably be here for eight or nine weeks, and then we'll move on from there. And this will probably take us into November timeline because I think this is the last Tuesday of September when this one will air. And then we'll have the four weeks of October and then, yeah, right into uh, November. So almost all the way up to Christmas. And we might pause for Christmas. I haven't quite decided what I'm going to do yet um, for the Tuesday shows, but this will take us right up to that mark where we would start a Christmas series on our Friday shows. So uh, let's dig into this outline. We're going to look at Scripture and its interpretation is the uh, first part. Then we're going to look at law and gospel. And then we're going to look at the person and the works of Christ. And then we're going to look at election and the bondage of the will, justification and sanctification, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and worship. So those are the eight chapters in this book. And so they, they dig into it. They give equal perspectives, and they're very respectful in how they handle the material. This is a essentially a conversation between the two, and it's not an argument or a debate. It is simply laying out what each party thinks and letting the reader find their way through it. So uh, we're going to begin here at the top of page two. I'm going to just read this paragraph, and then I'm going to kind of cherry-pick, if you would. I hate to use that term because I, it's really bad, but we're going to kind of point to th- certain things through... Um, the, the chapter. We're not going to read the chapter entirely because it's, you know, 30 pages and, and, and I don't, we don't have the time and nor, d- I think there's probably violation of copyright laws and such, but we're going to just read little bits and then we'll, we'll examine that in, in a larger scale. And so each chapter is basically structured in uh, the framework that it begins with the Lutheran train of thought explaining something. And then it goes into um, the, uh, the, the reformed train of thought. And then it goes to, um, you know, the explanation. And then there's a, a neat little conclusion at the end that kind of wraps up each of the two thoughts. And so that is helpful if you kind of missed maybe some of the big things that happened in the chapter and you're just kind of like, nah, I don't know where I'm at here. Uh, the conclusion wraps it fairly nice. And so let's begin in the top of page two. I'm just going to read this little caption real quick it says the holy scripture of the the, in the lutheran tradition and martin luther encountered god's presence power and promise in the words of holy scripture at first against his own desires but in obedience to his uh, monistic superior's direction luther took his assignment to prepare himself to teach the bible at university level as a call from god and devoted himself to his studies with the energy and zeal of a young augustinian Friar who sought salvation in the performance of his vows of chastity, poverty, and obedience. These studies contributed to the transformation of a man whose personality prepared him for walking with God, uh, for what God has to say with the utmost seriousness, and for throwing himself totally into the searching, the scriptures, to find eternal life. So I think that's a good summary to uh, how Luther really took on some of these topics, he always went to scripture under the pretext that this was life giving material. That is how Luther approached the scripture. So Luther's encounter with uh, scripture, we'll just read just very briefly here, it says increasingly Luther uh, recognized all of his efforts to save himself from his sinfulness was insufficient. His personality easily sensed the lows and highs of his life. This trait blended with the depiction of God as the almighty Lord and creator of all that exists. And so when, when Luther was young and going through the monkhood or the training to be a monk, um, it was, he, he spent an exorbitant amount of time in confession because he found himself struggling. And, and then for many years he, he had kind of a, a a vendetta against God because he, he was always questioning God on certain things, which is, you know, totally fine, but what we should understand is through these struggles, Luther comes to the understanding of where he comes to you know his his hermeneutical approach from. And again, I, I'm only reading small portions of this book. Uh, I would hope that you would grab this and uh, go further because this will help you uh, decipher you know a little bit more of the differences and, and get all the fullness picture painted for you so scripture and tradition uh, indeed Luther did not believe that scripture is the only source from which God's people hear their voice like Martin uh, Chalmence in his examination of the Council of Trent in 1565 to 73 Luther believed that the content of scripture not some magical use of its precise words carries out carries out God's will Chemenz, uh saw that the Holy Spirit at work and the church handed down God's word in seven ways. This quote unquote tradition defined by Luther and Melanchthon is not only the content but also the act of sharing the message for the next generation. Began with the words of Jesus and his disciples recorded by their contemporaries. The second mode of tradition is the scripture itself. The third expresses itself in the rule of faith, summarizes the biblical message that believers prepare themselves uh, for purposes of evangelism and instruction. Fourth, the meaning or the message of scripture is passed down through those who interpret and teach its texts. The development of dogmatic th- terminology based on scripture, such as Trinity, constituted Chimence's fifth form of handing down. The Catholic consensus of the fathers could six repeat that is being handed down. Uh, from former times and the faithful interpretation of biblical message. Likewise, the ancient rites and customs of the church would convey the message. Chalmintz did not allow as valid or biblical an eighth use of the term tradition, whose teaching claimed to be true, although they, quote, cannot be proved with any testimony of scripture, but which the Senate of Trent nevertheless commands to be received and venerated, with the same reverence uh, and devotion in scripture itself. And so these are pieces that uh, Martin uh, Chimence breaks down. He's a, he's a Lutheran theologian that comes just shortly after Luther and he, and he writes this down as, um, as a work, as a response essentially to the council of Trent, which would come out uh, shortly after Luther and uh, really Basically, just a mathematize the entire Reformation according to the Roman Catholic Church. So Luther's biggest thing is uh, that God is the one speaking through Scripture. This is the pretext that all Scripture, as Paul writes, is breathed out and inspired by God. Every word, every line, every every sentence, every everything is is breathed out and inspired by God, and this was the view that Luther takes on. Um, he doesn't quite always use the word inspiration frequently, uh, as the subsequent generations of Lutheran theologians would, um, but he translated, and I don't know the Greek word, God-breathed, uh, for, of 2 Timothy 3.16 to literally mean given into and poured onto. For Luther, the words of Scripture are the Holy Spirit's gift to the writers and the readers, Holy Scripture is God, the Holy Spirit's own special book, writing and word. So this is the telling of God's story from the very beginning to the very end. And all of it is, is narrated by God. And that is why it's so important for the Lutheran that when we get to a passage like Romans 10, we see how faith is a given and it comes by the reading of God's word. God's word is... Being inspired by God goes out and does not return empty, as the psalmist quotes. God's word will always fulfill its purpose. When God speaks, something happens. And generally, when and, and always when God speaks, something is created. Now, here's the interesting thing. When we preach God's word, something is being created. It is not us doing the work, it is not our quote unquote words, but it is the words of God through us as human vessels. What is that that is being created? That is faith in the unbeliever. More so for the Christian, it is the renewal of faith as it seems to dry out in the well of our minds. And so it is the replenishment, and the renewal, and the, and, the, and the beginning of faith always coming through. So Luther did not, however, claim perfect understanding of the precise meaning of every text, nor did he... Let himself be troubled by seemingly contradictions because he was convinced that human reason cannot comply with God's grasp, could not completely grasp God's wisdom and way of speaking, and God's reliability does not depend on the reader's mastering every biblical passage. This is another facet that is exceptionally important to the Lutheran. We don't try to answer every passage, we don't try to turn for some sort of logical conclusion or some philosophical meaning behind every single passage in scripture. If the passage has a clear meaning in the clear reading of the text, then that's what we go to. For instance, the Lord's Supper. It is clear and concise in what Jesus was meaning. That is how Luther approached that text. Other passages, such as apocalyptic, that would we would get out of Ezekiel or Daniel or Revelation, we would read that within more of a broad scope of symbol, uh, symbolic or analogy or anything like that, where we can't quite explain it, but we know that there's something there. Now, there are concepts in, in how God operates, why he chose preaching as being the means by which he conveys grace. Why did he choose baptism in, in the Lord's Supper as means to be grace? How did Jesus heal these people? How did, you know, all these things... We, we see the, the, the visible means by which it happens, but sometimes the things that go beyond that, we just allow to remain hidden. And how God works salvation in the, in the life of the sinner, how God works justification, how judgment will come, all of those things, we, we can only see what the scripture tells us, nothing more. And so Luther was very much against any sort of philosophical or Aristotelian Approach to Scripture, whereas John Calvin, being a lawyer, would rely more on that Aristotelian or logical explanation. There had to be an answer to everything, and so that's a big, significant difference between the Lutherans and the Reformed faith right out of the gate. Is the Lutherans don't try and answer every little jot and detail, but that doesn't mean that we just uh, throw our hat in and decide, oh, we're not going to bother with this. We will wrestle with the text. We will struggle and fight with the text. Until we either just say there's we can't possibly explain this without coming to uh, man's philosophy or man's reasoning and trying to understand what God is doing. We will wrestle with the text, but we know that there's a line that if we can't come to a conclusion that we just allow the mystery of God to continue. How does Christ come to us in the bread and wine? We don't know. He doesn't tell us. So why would we try to come up with some sort of philosophical or ridiculous explanation? And see, here's the interesting thing. Those words like transubstantiation that are applied or consubstantiation that are applied to the Lord's Supper come from outside of the Lutheran camps. And those are views that are trying to explain what happens and how Christ is present or not present in the, in with the bread and wine. Luther rejects all of that stuff and he says... We cannot turn to man's explanation. We must rely on God. So then the chapter continues with discussing uh, Luther's canon, not anything we're going to get into too deep. Um, Then he gets scripture's clarity, sufficiency, and power. Uh, Obviously, everything for Luther was driven by God's word. If you read any of Luther's letters that he wrote to people in counseling, it was always saturated with scripture Every line and every jot and tittle was bleeding scripture everywhere you turned. And so Luther always turned to the word of God as a counseling mechanism. Luther's method for biblical exposition. Luther believes that the scripture tells God's story in a straightforward human language. However, although he rejects the medieval allegorical system as the chief method of biblical interpretation, he occasionally turns to allegory as an instrument for conveying basic biblical teachings. His commentary on Deuteronomy, which was out in 1525, contained allegories that the electioner offered his hearers in order to prevent the inept efforts of forging allegories in the manner of Jerome. And so Luther's biggest piece to understanding Scripture is law and gospel. Is this passage giving me a law? Is this passage giving me uh, a promise? And so that is how Luther read the the Old uh, and New Testament and he uh, used that essentially as the hermeneutical approach. And that is how Lutherans today still do it. When we look at a passage, um, like, for instance, in the lectionary of the gospel coming up this Sunday that I will be not at church on the 4th of September, uh, the text is surrounding uh, the cost of discipleship. And so the cost of discipleship, the law is, is so heavily present there that it is you must surrender everything, give up everything, and hate everybody in order to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That is the law that is present in the text. But the promise is shines much brighter, and you don't always see it at first glance. The promise is you don't have to literally hate everything, even though that's the words used, but you must love everything less. They they can come into second place, but God must come first, because God is everything to you and for you. And, and it's such a beautiful message that, we will still stumble and fail in striving for that because we can't possibly hate everything less than we love God. We can't even we can't love everything less than we love God because we're going to make idols in our lives. And so Luther approaches all of the text in that fashion: law and gospel. Whereas in a, reform, uh, a reformed church or a Calvinistic church or a non-denominational, they may do more of what's called expository preaching where they will take the scripture and unpack what it's saying and they'll talk about it, but it'll always be left in either here's what's happening. Here's the culture. Uh, they'll, they'll explain the text thoroughly. They'll, you know, and many churches do a great job at that, but they'll always then leave you, okay, what is this text telling you to do? And it kind of leaves you in a legalistic bond. And really what it's going to do is leave you under the law because they're going to give you these like, okay, okay, if the cost of discipleship costs me everything, how do I apply that to my life? Okay, I must learn to love everything less than I love God, and it must. And, and, and if I don't check my daily list of things that I love less than God, then I'm not doing a good enough job. That's what that, those, that type of preaching is going to do, and I'll be the first to admit, I used to preach like that. I used to preach that every sermon would have an applications list at the very end, things that you could take from this passage and apply to your life, and to be a good Christian, and none of that works. What they need is to hear the law, how it's killing them in their life, and then they need to hear the gospel. So that's the Lutheran faith. Now we look at the Reformed faith. The reform, the Reformation was among uh, other revelations of the book. There was, of course, the soul, soul, uh, psychological dimensions to this. The 15th century invention of the, invention of the printing press made books more readily available and set foundation for a society in which literacy has become more and more important. Yet the Reformation was not was no more mere transformation as it lay at the heart of the Bible. Now the Bible has always been important to Christianity. In the Middle Ages produce a number of excellent expositors and preachers, and no man was deemed qualified to be a professor in theology in medieval times until he had lectured through significant quantities of the Bible. But the Reformation gave new importance to scripture, for the reformers God was present In the church primary, through his word, the word read and the word preached. Pulpits came to occupy the focal point of attention as altars had done in the past. To be a reformer was to be someone who placed the Bible, its exposition, and its proclamation at the center of the church life, and who made the Bible the narrative criteria for all theological discussions. So a lot of similarities, right, between already the Lutheran and the Reformed faith. The Bible is the center. For the Reformed, though, the Bible was only the center, and that's why the pulpit became its premise of preaching, whereas the Lutherans, the premise included the word and sacrament, and that's why the altar for Lutherans is still an important place in the church. So like Luther, the Reformed regarded the word, specifically the word preached, as central to everything they do. The most dramatic confession expresses the of this occurs in the first chapter, the Heinrich Boller's second Helvick confession states this, therefore, when this word of God is today proclaimed in the church through preachers who have legitimately called have been legitimately called, we believe that it is the very word of God, which is proclaimed and received by the faithful and that no other word of God is needed to be invented nor to be expected from heaven. So that is the premise. The weight of the word is front and center with how the reformers taught and their premise to it. Uh, The basics of the reform positions are here. Scripture is sufficient. Scripture is also very clear on the essentials of salvation, either by direct statement or by legitimate inference. And the most vital truths are so plainly stated that even the ignorant and the unlearned shall be able to grasp them. We might add that the interpretation, far from being a complicated matter of modern hermeneutical philosophers, have sought to make it. As for the Reformed and the rather straightforward affair, doctrines such as the Trinity and the Incarnation, as well as justification by grace through faith, were considered clearly evident to anyone with eyes to see. This connects with the development of lists of quote-unquote fundamental articles in the Reformed Orthodoxy whose documents uh, who, those documents that ver- that every Christian must come to believe because they are plainly taught by Scripture. So the Reform's relationship here between the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, is this, perhaps the fundamental imperative question for the Reformed, indeed, perhaps the fundamental imperative question for the Christian church as a whole, is that of the relationship between the Old and the New Testament. Ever since Marcion attempted to construct the canon canon premised on the foundational contradiction of the God of the Old and the God of the New, or God of the parts of the New Testament, this matter has been central to the discussions and meanings of the the Scripture. In Book 2 of the Institutes, Calvin takes up this matter and outlines ways in which the two Testaments are similar and different. While Calvin and the confessional Reformed in general do not hold to the law-gospel antithesis of Luther, this is, not, this is not their fundamental principle for understanding the Scripture. Instead, the Reformed approach are more oriented to a historical understanding and the unfolding of God's redemptive purposes. Another big difference, I think, would help us to understand is Lutherans are law gospel preachers. Uh, Reformed are covenantal preachers. And so they're going to preach from a historical narrative and they're going to preach that uh, these are the things that God has done and is doing and will do. And the Lutherans, preach the law gospel, like, okay, this is what God's done. This is what God is doing to you right now. And this is what God has done for you and is doing to you and will do for you in terms of salvation. The analogy of faith under the reform, the Westminster confession acknowledges the reformed understand that not all passages of scripture are equally propitious and that obtain and that obscure passages aren't to be interpreted in light of those, whose meaning is clear interpretation therefore involves comparison of various passages uh, for the reformed. It would be this comment that I've heard numerous times. Scripture interprets scripture. And that is perfectly fine. Um, but what they'll try to do is stretch that analogy into the premise of uh, scripture misinterpreting other passages. And, you know, and, and I'll tell you what, I when I interviewed Brian Wolfmuller, on, uh, on this show, on an on episode back early in the summer, we had gotten to the discussion of the Lord's Supper, and more importantly, we got to the discussion on John chapter 6. And he goes, he made the comment, he goes, that's not necessarily speaking about the Lord's Supper, which would to come. And and I was like, oh my goodness, I've heard so many Lutherans use that as a precursor or a pretext to uh, discussing Matthew 26. And so we have to understand contextually and 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 hermeneutically how we would apply certain passages like that and for the lutheran we don't look and say okay well this passage says this so it obviously is pointing to that passage over here and and this you know you know, we don't draw the lines to connect it if the passages aren't explicitly connected we we, we don't try to make any sort of connection and that is why we stick to the law gospel and we allow the reformers to to do what they do now listen like I said, I have so much love and respect for the reformers because I come from that camp and I think, you know, there's so many brilliant minds out there. We just have a different way of approaching scripture. So to conclude here, the reformed commitment to correct biblical interpretation arises out of the belief that the Bible is the word of God in written form and its basis for God's saving action in the world. The basic means by which God acts through this word in his proclamation of the church a proclamation that when done in a manner faithful to God's scriptural revelation is used by the Holy Spirit to convict of sin, to inc- inculate faith and to edify the body. This has certain practical implications for the church life. Believers are to be taught the basic catechal, uh, catechetical categories of the faith so that they themselves will learn how to rightly handle the word of God and not be able to in li- to be able to listen with discernment to what that they hear from the pulpit. Preaching is to be central in the uh, gathered worship of the church. Ministers who are called to this task are properly trained to handle the word of God, which uh, which normally requires both linguistic and theological skills. Preaching is to draw attention to the preachers. Sermons are therefore to aid the believer in understanding scripture better. But more than that, the word preached is the word of God and comforts individuals in glor- in, with the glorious Lord who saves, calling forth a response of faith and adoration. Now, if you didn't notice, um, between the Lutheran and the uh, and the Reformed faith, one of the major um, positions is the the reflection of the sermon. And I say that because within the Reformed faith, you'll hear sermons that are 45 minutes, hour, hour 20, you know, or longer in the, in the Lutheran circles, you'll, you'll be hard stretched to find a sermon over 35 minutes. Most of my sermons are about 26 minutes to 30 minutes long, depending on what I'm talking about. Um, sometimes they're shorter and sometimes they're, you know, up in that, upper mark, but they usually don't go over 35 minutes by any means. And I've never heard, I haven't seen many, if any Lutheran preachers in my day go over 35 minutes. Our, our, our attention isn't the sole focus of the Lutheran service isn't the, isn't on the sermon. It's on the, the entirety of the worship experience. And so we'll talk about that when we get to the very end, when we talk about worship. So there's a, that's another significant difference between the Lutheran faith and the Reformed faith is the, is the importance and the weight placed upon the sermon The sermon for the Lutheran is just another means by which we can convey the gospel promise that salvation and forgiveness can be had through Jesus Christ. For the Reformed, the the emphasis is placed upon teaching and explaining the scripture so that people in the audience can hear and understand what is being taught. So I'm going to try and keep this as as, as lighthearted and respectful as possible between both parties. I, I love to talk about this kind of stuff. Uh, and I hope that you enjoy this episode a little bit longer than normal, and we'll probably have to be there because some of these topics are a little bit lengthier. Uh, so we might hit closer to that 40 minute mark on these few episodes. So thanks for tuning in, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you guys have a great week and, uh, Yo, know, fall should be in full swing by the time this episode airs. So enjoy the cooler weather if you're in an area that is experiencing that. Otherwise, I, you know, if you're on the other side of the world or in the in a different hemisphere, I don't know. I know I got people all over the world who listen. So wherever you are, enjoy the life, the time, the life that God has given you. Be blessed, and we'll see you all later.